everyone, welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kimura, and today on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hi. And our special guest today is Mark Hutter. Hi, thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me on. So, Mark, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself, who you are, who you work for, and all that good stuff? Sure. Uh, Mark Hutter. I'm the lead developer at a company called Landing. We're doing kind of a, a living as a service. We provide fully furnished turnkey apartments across the United States. Uh, membership, which gives you access to the internet of apartments if you're into you know traveling and staying in different places. I've been a developer professionally since 2009, and I've been doing Rails development primarily since 2014, I think. Awesome. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. And today we had you on the call here today to talk about active storage. And it's regarding a Rails conference that you did a talk this year. So the remote Rails conf. Would you mind giving us a highlighted overview of what that talk was about? Sure. So I think it had a real pithy title, like can active storage serve your assets for the modern web or something? It was my experience of when we launched this company last year using active storage as our image asset serving platform and the hiccups we I ran into as part of that. So at landing just started last year, last November, when we Rails newed up the project and started using things, we just used all Rails stuff. And I had a lot of problems with performance using active storage for all of our images. You know, we sell apartments and it's residential real estate. There are a lot of pictures. People want lots of pictures of the thing they're renting. And I just had all kinds of uh, little potholes that I ran into. And so I figured I probably wasn't alone. Or if I was, somebody else was going to run into this stuff too. So I thought I'd put together a conference talk and I was fortunate enough that it was accepted. Awesome. And so when we talk about performance, there's really two ends of it. You have the client-side perception of how fast something is. And then you also have the server side where the server could get hammered or it could just respond slowly. So can you speak to that a bit? So when we talk about performance, which side are you really talking about? Yeah, so really, I kind of view it as like three pillars. You have, you know, your server response times, your JavaScript and how well it's performing, and then your assets, your static assets and how they're serving and how fast they're coming from. And my talk was really directed only to the specifics of images and image assets and how they serve and how active storage serves those and how that impacts performance. Because you definitely like 
your performance metrics will still be terrible if your server responds in, you know, two and a half seconds, even if everything renders on the page instantaneously. And so what were some of the issues or the performance issues that you came across when you were developing your apartment app? Sure. The very first thing we ran into was integrating to a CDN. So I'll back up a bit. Like, I think Nate Berkepec has a lot of good metrics on this, but there's a pretty tight correlation to, you know, customer conversion as it relates to the performance of your website. You, the the faster it is, the higher your conversion goes up. And because of the product we're selling and the value, the dollar value attached to that, uh, conversion was a really big deal for our company, especially early on. Like we just needed to convert as high a percentage as we could. And so we look at the performance. Performance is not great. We're serving everything right off the uh, right off of Puma, right off the Rails server, and it's not great. So I'm like, me and my you know infinite wisdom of 12 years experience, haha. Was like, we'll throw a CDN on it. That'll make everything better, right? That'll make everything go really fast. And that was the first thing I was like, doesn't work. You know, just it it wouldn't serve. It wasn't serving the assets from the CDN. And so I was like, what is happening? And that was our our first major hiccup. And how did y'all get around that issue? Well, there were a couple iterations. The um, the first iteration was really more of like a a custom view helper image tag that swapped host names for CDN root paths. And we tried to do it that way. And that worked okay. Through a lot of research, what I found was the way active storage works is it's actually, you know, it's running a couple database queries to get the asset. Assuming that it's already pre-processed, whatever it needs to, it's going to return to you a link to that thing. So it returns to the browser, this 302 to go and fetch the thing. And depending on where it's coming from, like ours were coming from S3, that was that was really slow for the amount of assets we had. And so we kept digging, kept researching. Turns out I wasn't the only person who had this problem. And there's a Stack Overflow post and it's on some GitHub issues. There's this monkey patch to the representations controller uh, show method, which is the receiving point for every active storage request. And what it's doing is it's overriding default behavior to not return the 302 to basically kind of download the image and serve it as if it were coming right off the web server, which then the C, uh, just returns a 200 and the CDN can see in cache. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And I, when you do it like that, do you get the full URL with the file name extension and all that? Or is it still in the representation of just like that blog key? It's been a while since I looked at this. I, I believe it's still in the, the the representation. I'm not sure though. Okay. Because I know uh, some CDN services like Cloudflare, even if you have an image and if it's correctly coded in the meta tags, unless it's the actual extension ends in a .jpeg or .png or something, then it won't cache it. It'll look like everything's working right, but then we actually check the headers of the image on the request. It's like, yeah, no, we didn't catch cache that at all. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'll kind of skip ahead to what became our final. Well, maybe I shouldn't do that yet. Maybe I should let the let the history unfold itself. Have you tried giving it weird extensions, Dave? Like seeing what you what it would and won't cache. Flare, especially if they kind of get flagged that you are caching things that you should not be caching, for example, video files. So you can break up a video file into tiny chunks 
and then serve them. So do a adaptive bitrate streaming. And if you try to cache those, then you could essentially get your account terminated. Banned from Cloudflare. That's, that sucks. Are, are you speaking from personal experience there? How many accounts do you have? So I'm speaking from personal experience as far as that's what I read, that someone had happened to them. Yeah, that the same thing happened to a friend of mine on Facebook. They got banned. And Tinder too. Mm. So what other issues, Mark, did you experience with active storage? And I guess kind of let's backtrack. Why did you choose active storage opposed to Shrine, Carrier Wave, and the sure. other many solutions? Yeah, I really liked active storage for a lot of reasons. The one of the greatest benefits was that it just it kind of centralizes everything. So Carrier Wave or Paperclip, they did this thing where they kind of like sprinkled data attributes all, all over your models that needed images. So you might have several tables that have image on them or something. Previous to landing, I worked at a much larger engineering organization, you know, just with 175 engineers and all kinds of departments. And there was a team dedicated to data analysis and making sure everything had the right image and the right image count. And it was just a nightmare. They were like, all right, where do I go look for this thing? All right, where do I go look for this thing? All right, where do I go look for this thing? And you were always, anytime you did, and you had to add images to new things and you had to keep everybody up to date. And so this was like, we don't have a team that big, thankfully, but the centralization of putting it in these two tables and kind of just sticking in one place. Anybody who needed to do that was like, you look here, you look here, here are the polymorphic key columns. Everything you need to know is right here and it won't ever change. Like it won't move. It won't, I won't, I won't move your cheese. It's right there. And so I really liked it for that reason. Probably the biggest reason to use it over another thing is like, it is, it's in Rails now and it's only going to get better. And Rails is one of the best supported open source projects. And so you just get strength of community and strength of building and whatever problems there might be, they're going to get ironed out because you know other people are feeling it because you know it's used so much. And those were things that I thought were like, look, we have to do this even if it hurts at first. You know, we had a lot of conversations as we were running into problems like maybe we back up. You know, maybe we back up and we switch gears and go to Carrier Wave. We all knew how to do that. We've all done that before. We already had a lot of images in active storage. So the migration path was a little like, okay, how do we get these 120,000 images out and into something else? Do we really want to do that work? But really, it was like, this is the path forward. And we're going to keep going forward. Rails is going to keep going forward. So like, let's just tough it out and get it to work and it'll get easier as time progresses. Yeah, I think one of the biggest hiccups that I personally found with Active Storage when I first started out, and it just, it really rubbed me the wrong way, was when you upload to S3 or whatever storage mechanism you're uploading to, it just all gets dumped into one folder. It doesn't matter what kind of namespacing or scoping out, you know, if you had different companies within your application, you can't separate those from another companies. And that really tripped me up until I started realizing like, who cares? Yeah, it's going to go in there. It doesn't matter if it is an image. It doesn't matter if it's some other kind of asset. It doesn't matter if it's on this model or that model. I mean, why do I care how that's organized on the storage mechanism? You know, it doesn't really provide me any speed benefit or any other kind of benefit. You know, if I ever have to do a reconciliation to download a person's data, so let, let's say like the Facebook backup mechanism, 
I'm not going to fetch all of that off of S3 directly. I'm going to have my application bundle all that together and provide a zip file or something. So that was one of my initial hiccups, but I agree with your sentiment entirely where it's baked into Rails now. It's supported. It's going to be supported. Unlike some other upload things like, who was it, Paperclip? They came out and said, yeah, in light of active storage, we're no longer going to be supporting this. Right, yeah. I mean, I think the community also saw the gem maintainers and they started moving toward, okay, this will be the supported way we do things in the future. So let's let's kind of coalesce to that. And I also like that it drives everybody to the data. You know, like that there's... There is S3, and if you look at that, God bless you, because it's all just hashed and salted keys or whatever over there. But like, even from a business standpoint, people who are trying to understand something about your business, about your quality of your application, it pushes them to, into the database to analyze that. And then from the database outward, instead of them trying to come at it from what is really like, I won't call it like ancillary service. That's not right. But you know, like S3 is like this thing dangling off of your application. It's something you use. It's not core to your product or to your service. The data is. And so it pushes people to the core thing to analyze the outside outside parts, like an inside out approach, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it also prevents people from tinkering with the data on S3. Because I know before when I was using Carrier Wave, if something didn't quite work right, like, oh, I'll just upload it to S3 and just kind of muck around with the data on my database to make it point to it correctly. So I think this using Active Storage definitely prevents that because then it's not going to match up. You have to go through the proper channels in order for everything to line up correctly. And I love how Active Storage is very agnostic to what backend you use. You can use Azure, GCP, S3, file mechanism if you're brave. Yeah, yeah, totally. You I mean, sorry, uh, you can set up folders within S3 buckets. And in fact, the S3 interface does allow you to browse by folder, even though they're not real, they're virtual folders. And when we started getting into S3, this was way back in the day. We had numerous bugs and things. So it was helpful to organize stuff into folders just using kind of forward slashes. The downside of this is that the Amazon tools do kind of break if you put a lot of, of objects in a single virtual folder. So, yeah, sure, it does discourage you. But when you do hit one of these very tricky problems and you put all of your objects into one flat bucket, then you can get into quite serious trouble. We did have to dump a couple of buckets while we sorted that image out. And again, you're not going to hit this as long as your database is running and you're fine. But as soon as you do start hitting these issues, it can be helpful to do that. Now, you can't do that in active storage normally. And there's a thread on the uh, Rails GitHub about it. You can define prefixes for certain conditions. So if you're if you're a bit, oh, I can't say that. If you like to keep things organized a lot, then you can use these prefixes to organize your data and then you can manually browse using the Amazon tools without them falling over if you have a couple of hundred thousand things in there. But I agree that the, the whole point of using Rails and active storage is this, this stuff is abstracted away. So if by doing it that way, you're kind of missing all the benefits of just kind of uh, encapsulating that complexity. 
carrier wave or update carrier wave to a newer version. And then the fog service just won't connect to your S3 bucket anymore. Or if you're coming back to an older application and just whatever reason, fog is just not playing correctly. I know that's happened to me a number of times. And that's why just switching over to Active Storage is such a breath of fresh air because I've never ran into those issues. Yeah, we used Carrier Wave at, in a previous life. And I seem to remember we had at least some hiccups with it too. There were, you just, all everything kind of comes with its nuances that you might not know up front. And so to learn it, Early on, maybe with active storage where it's lower risk, you don't have a lot of users or something. That was our position is we were still getting going and we were still acquiring new customers. And so it was like, okay, we, if, it, if it's broken right now, we can fix it. We'll make it better. We'll keep, we'll keep iterating. We'll keep making it better. We'll keep improving the process and we'll, we'll grow alongside this thing. I know not everybody gets that privilege of like putting active storage in day one, you know, new project. Like how often do you get to, spin up a new Rails project for a company to do a thing. So I understand it's a privileged position. I think there's a there's a good 2019 Rails comp talk about the migration path from, you know, carry wave or paperclip or something into active storage. And like it kind of a, a similar mantra that mine had, like where where the where there be dragons in that process and what they experienced. Absolutely. I've been through that on Drift and Ruby where I was using Carrier Way for all of the videos, images, you know, anything uploaded. And I wanted to switch over to active storage. And it's not an easy migration. I mean, you really have to consider a lot of different things. But one of the things that I started or that I did was I just wrote a rake task which basically did all the conversions over to active storage. So now basically had double the data. And also, then I did a separate release, which then changed all the endpoints for everything from active store from carrier wave to active storage. And then I did another release down the road, removing carrier wave entirely. Yeah, yeah. So we're saying uh, carrier wave bad, over. active storage good. <laughs> No, I love Carrier Wave. I think that for the time that it was my go-to choice, it was amazing. So I'm not speaking ill of Carrier Wave at all, you know, personally, but I have since moved on. Right. Same sentiment. Carrier Wave did an amazing job for us. I worked at a previous company that had a lot of products, tens of millions of products with multiple images. And it did a, a phenomenal job handling that load for us. As just when we started a new thing, we decided to go with what was baked into the framework because we figured the support would be there moving forward. So if we get back to the active storage bit for a moment, if someone is wanting to start doing image uploads and if they're going to use active storage as their path, what are some things that they should really know about it in order to be successful? And to be fast, since that's kind of the idea of our talk here. Sure, yeah. The other key aspect we found, you know, Active Storage does a great job of variant support, which is your resizing, where it can take your canonical image and, and resize it to any pixel width height you like. The 
caveat to that we found was like that needs to ha- that's kind of an expensive process and probably needs to happen ahead of time if it can. Like if it happens in the request response lifecycle, that could take a second, like a full a full second, full two seconds, maybe depending on your web server load. And if you have to do a lot of them, it gets really, really, uh, really hairy. So that was our other, you know, main takeaway was to do that variant resizing ahead of time, preferably in like we have, we have photographers that'll upload images of an apartment and there'll be these really high res images, you know, not not the kind of photographers that like really care about it because they're kind of gig economy workers who are just doing this to take pictures in an apartment. But we'll have a 25 of them. We'll need to resize them to six different variants. We know all of that up front. So when the upload process happens, we just kick off the, all those all those jobs. And until that process is complete, we don't like publish anything that would show those images. So we don't catch it in the request response lifecycle. But that was another big kind of gut punch for us was it was doing this variant resizing on the fly, which is super cool. That's awesome that it does that. But it is kind of slow in terms of like computer request response time. And so how would you call the background job from an image upload? Were you doing direct uploads and then did a monkey patch on active storage where it would then trigger off a background job? Or did you have it like in line with your controller to then say, oh, if there's any new images, then kick off this background job? Right. The second one. So we have we have kind of probably like most companies, an administrative side to our Rails application. And in the administrative controller that handled image processing is just if there are new images saved onto this thing, you know, go spin off a background job that does all the processing of the new images. We actually probably, I think, in true architecture, we do one background job per new image and we process them individually. So you, you, you've got your um, you've got your website, you've made the website, you've got photos coming in. You're not too happy about the speed the photos come out. Uh, and then we've got a various changes to active uh, storage, such as the kind of doing resizing in advance, as you said, with the variants. What what does good performance look like for you? When you when you when you when your team was looking at this and you're thinking, oh, we need to fix this. Where is that line for you on the tools like Lighthouse and the page speed on Google? Yeah, our line. So the driving mechanism for this again was conversion, which actually came out of you know sort of marketing and growth. And their line was just basically like kind of the, that top line number needed to be in the yellow, whatever the 70-ish mark, you know, 60, 70 was sort of like, we were down in the like, truly in the like teens to 20s, you know, it was like 13, we were scoring on this thing. And I had never used this tool before prior to this job. I didn't even know it existed. And so I get in here and I'm like, I don't know what any of this means. Like it's just, it says I'm failing miserably, but what does that mean and how? And, um, you know, some of it I knew was server-side, like I could see the N plus one queries. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm querying this data. I'm hammering this database. That's never a good thing. You know, my Rack Mini profiler is telling me that. But some of the other things I didn't really know. And so we kind of worked with them to, I mean, they would have loved to see it at like a 90, which um, we actually were able to prove or validate that we would get to outside of like, 
Google Tag Manager and third-party JavaScript. We're like, look, we're never going to get here with these other things. So this is the right. highest we're going to get. And so that's what we sort of coalesced on was, you know, we focused really heavily on the two metrics, which were uh, like first contentful paint and speed index. Those seem to be the things that our image changes affected the most that could drive up the score. They seem to have like the highest impact for us. Yeah. And uh, of course, it's very much my mind that this is this is a very photo intensive use case. I mean, people are deciding whether or not to, to make a purchase decision based on these photos, really. It's one of the main things. So you do want a high quality image, but you also want it to appear straight away. Yeah, that's totally correct. I mean, we had we are a very, I guess, photo intensive site because every unit has some amount of photos, 25 photos or something, the property itself, like you want to see the gym and the pool and the courtyard and the grill and the lobby and the lounge and all the things that a building might also offer. And we also are, we're serving all of this on, you know, a mobile responsive way, but it's, effectively one HTML page that's doing both. So we have all these variants being served from the server at the same place. We have all these images, like you could think of a product list page that's returning 30 results and each thing has a carousel of 25 pictures. And then each property of those things has a carousel of eight to 10 pictures. And then we're variant resizing those things, you know, three or four different ways. We eventually hammered ourselves so bad because we weren't lazy loading anything and we weren't Mm. doing any pre-processing that we were hitting our database with 3,800 queries, you know, active storage, blob attachment per every image, you know, per all the homes, per all the properties, multiplied by all the variants. And it was just like, just murder, you know, and you learn a lot from that process. Is that 3,800 queries for one page? Right, yeah, like a single, it was It was our, what like our product list page. Like if you search, you know, apartments in Atlanta for these dates or something, they return to you all the apartments. And then each of those have like, you know, property images too. So it might be 30 re- results. Each of those have 25 images. Each of those images has four different variants because of the different sizes. And all of those things were running a database query or two database queries. And so... <laughs> One question I have about the processing of the images. Do you guys ever do like a uh, PNG 8-bit conversion down from a 24? Because I know on a lot of the images that I'll upload to my site, I'll actually do a, a PNG alpha transparency conversion, which it still makes it look crystal clear. You know, as long as you're not like zooming in microscopically to see all the pixels. But it retains the, you know, quote, quality while drastically reducing the file size. No, I'm unfamiliar. Uh, We did, you know, some WebP conversions or just in the feedback from the Lightspeed tool, you know, they have a section on, you know, next-gen image formats and these are the things you can do to improve. And they were like WebP or JPEG 2000 or JPEG XR or something. So we were doing conversions of our image assets into those things to kind of like, well, really to see if that would bump up our score a little bit, you know? Um, And they are a, I think a lossy compression format. Is it similar? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think you can do it with image magic with like a convert your source picture. You can pass in a parameter for the number of colors that you want and then do a PNG eight colon 
and then your destination image. Yeah, we we are we did everything converted to WebP at first because WebP is the Chrome supported compressed format thing. I think we did do some of this too. I think our like our design team actually went through our images and tried this. I'll go ahead and say we probably threw money at the problem and totally cheated. And CloudFront has a product called Polish or something, and they just do this for you. And I don't know how it works. It just it's on your CDN and they see the images and they serve the appropriate compressed format to the browser that's requesting the page. And so we kind of like after three or four iterations of trying to fight the compression problem, we found that and called it a day. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not aware of a, a standard open source image optimizer, because you're talking about image optimization there, right, Dave? You're talking about for a given quality, what's the best file size I can get without losing too much detail. Correct. And most of your tools like ImageMagic will give you the compression ratio you want, but they won't suggest a compression ratio for a given format that still captures a certain level of detail. And I think a lot of these third-party services like Cloudflare and uh, various others try a few different compression ratios, look at the effect of the sharp edges and detail in the image, and then just kind of pick one based on a compromise. But I've, I've never seen the code or public kind of open source projects that actually do that end-to-end. Yeah, right now I do it manually uh, for each image that I upload that I'm going to be serving just because I want to make sure that if it's a more of a monotone, then I'll scale it down to only 10 colors or something or 16 colors. Or if it's something of a more actual picture of something, scale it down to 256 colors to still retain some quality. I wonder if the image processing gem can do that. All right, well, I know what I'll be doing tonight. So what other issues did you see with implementing active storage that kind of made you want to go back to Carrier Wave or just some other issues you had to deal with? Those are kind of, those are the two big ones I remember. Again, it's been, it's been six months in the year of 2020. So it's been 37 years since I looked at this. I think those were our like two big concerns were the, oh, the other big problem we had, I forget, was I mentioned it before, our N plus one problem. So we were, you know, returning a an array of objects to the client on the view, you're looping through them and you're calling for the images. And each of those actually runs as part of active storage, two database queries, because all of your image assets are stored in an active storage attachments and an active storage blobs table. Those things relate to each other. And so we were getting all of these really N plus two queries on everything. And then the variance on those on everything. And that was actually a really easy solve with some quick Googling and documentation because because they are just these tables that are related to your models you can eager load them just like you can eager load or include anything else. And so that's what we did for that, which solved, you know, a huge amount of problems for us. They just, they have even have active storage has a particular helper eager load. I think that's called like with image attachments or, or with something with image somethings. 
Yeah. And with uh, attached and then whatever, with, like avatars or images. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, with attached images. Thank you. And that reduced our database query load tremendously. That was like the kind of third big gut punch. But again, probably one of the easier for us to solve in the long run. Yeah, I just, I'm trying to think of a situation where you wouldn't want to use that kind of eager loading. Maybe if you're doing Russian doll caching, but exactly for the most part, I would think that 99% of the time you would want it to automatically do that. So I think they should have a method without attached images to override <laughs> the default of <laughs> including it. I think it should be baked in. That's, that's say, a great point. I will say that that I think would work for 99.9% of use cases. But when you have 5 million or so uh, associated records, that's the point at which the, um, the eager loading starts to fall over. So I totally agree that should be the default. But when it hits you, it hits you hard. Yeah, yeah. I, I could see like at my previous job, we had a lot of images. It was um, a, a grocery delivery thing. So a grocery catalog is huge and each little product might have four or five images, but you get just tons of these things. And I really, we didn't do eager loading for those images because we wanted to be more explicit about what was loaded. So we like had to hand roll kind of an eager loading solution to load a limited set of images attached to each product. And I could see that that could be the case, like Luke was mentioning, really large image sets that are unruly, you might might need a finer grain control. Can I can I ask about the is something you talk you touched on the talk, the service URL feature of active storage. Sure. Yeah. I really like this feature actually. I, like, I didn't really know this like existed this at all. Yeah, I'm not sure. I bet. I mean, I, I live in blissful ignorance most of the time, but uh, this is this is a really interesting feature, particularly with S3 storage and the like. You you explained in the talk that it's the I think it was the expiry feature that was of interest. Yeah, I don't know that you'd ever need to do this. For an image, maybe you would. Depends on what the image is. But another thing we have to deal with often are our leases, our legal documents that may or may not have some time attached to them of like validity. And so this secure URL thing, you can, with options that you can pass into it or configuration set to create a URL that points to S3 that is... Secure beyond security. I don't even know that I'm smart enough to explain the extent of security, but it's it's uh, encoded in such a way and it has this expiration set to it that you know that link is only good for a certain amount of time and points explicitly to this one asset and can't leak over into maybe exposing your bucket at large or anything. And this is just a really cool thing if you ever have to just like share something with an external party, you know, maybe a, you know, a consulting company and you're linking them out to things, proposals or whatever, but you don't want them just to have, have this asset forever. You know, they have to accept the proposal in order to move forward or something. It's a great way to like give them this thing. They can see it. I, I mean, you, I think the default is really like five minutes. It's a very short window you can set it to whatever you want but even that's that is just like yeah it's pretty short I, i'm pretty sure that's what it is but 
real easy way to give somebody something to be like, here, look at this thing. And then if they try to request it after the expiration, it just 404s. It's like, it's not there anymore. And I just think that's just brilliant. And I, especially for, you know, legalese, I used to work in healthcare. I could see like just a ton of sen- sensitive industries that need to share documents, assets, information in a secure way. And I'm sure everybody's had to bake their own way to do this thing. And so to have this just like very well-tested, foolproof solution was just really brilliant to me. Yeah, I think my preferred way for approaching something like that, and it's by no means ideal and it probably will fail upon upon scaling, is to fetch the image from whatever storage mechanism and then do a send data to send it from the Rails application. So that way my controller or my app can validate, does this particular session have access to this particular attachment? Yeah, yeah. But then uh, would your controller manage expiration? Like it would start a timer or something? Yeah, it, it could either do a timer or you could have something where when you upload a record, you can say that this record expires at. So you actually have that as part of your data model. And then it can return a 401, 404, whatever. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I think either uh, option is really valid and good. I, I like this because it is still just the one record and really the service URL method kind of handles all that exp- expiring for you. So every time you just kind of wrap the wrap the fetch of that asset in service URL and the URL back is just assigned, sealed, and delivered. Yeah. Yeah, but then they could share that URL potentially with someone else real quickly. You know, I'm thinking, let's say if you buy some digital goods online and they send you a URL saying, okay, you are now permitted to download this and you can download it for the next hour before it becomes unavailable. You have to contact support in order to download it again. Well, they could, within that one hour, post it on social media or something and then give everyone access to that product. Oh, that's a good point. Like, how do you handle authorization through service URL? Yeah. And so I think that's where having it go through your actual controller, you verify that session. You could still make the request to the URL for where it's stored in S3, you know, keep it as the process or not process, the expiration date because that's never a bad thing anyways but then you would just send data and send over the contents of that file yeah that's, that's a good if call you're like super paranoid and like if you're dealing with like healthcare stuff and you have to protect that content right yeah they're probably like the HIPAA complex healthcare and banking probably do this but yeah still a good call out I wonder how they handle this you know I, I, I kind of wonder if there is a something built into it where you could pass a some sort of authorization param to service URL where it handles this stuff too. So that if, you know, that request wasn't coming from, you know, something with a cookie or something, it did, it wouldn't work. It'd be interesting. That'll be my homework for tonight. <laughs> I got a dumb question. Shoot. So the idea is that we've got the active storage taking care of all the awesome stuff. We've optimized the queries. And then we're to get things extra fast, we're leveraging the CDN. And the CDN is going to serve up those images much faster than our own server if it could, correct? Correct. Now, one of the things you touched on the talk is uh, 302. We already discussed it briefly. 302 redirects. 
and the fact they can't be be cached by the CDN. Why doesn't that work? I don't know. I think my naive, this is like an interview question where I'm going to make up an answer to sound like I know what I'm talking about, but I'm really filling in the gaps here. But it would, if I put it together, like the CDN would have to get a 200 response code as verification of that thing. A 302 would point it to something else, which it would then have to follow to get it, which would not be as valid as just returning the sort of terminal state 200 of, or even, I guess, you know, 500 or 400 at times of an asset. But I'm not entirely sure. I actually said this in the talk. I'm not entirely sure a CDN mm-hmm. can't cache a 302. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've, had, I've heard opposing points on that, and I haven't really banged on it hard enough to come to a conclusion myself. Yeah, we often think of 302 as a redirect, but it's actually a temporary redirect, which is probably why CDNs won't catch it by default. A 301 is a permanent move, and a 308 is a permanent redirect. So I'm wondering if a 301 and 308 would be cached, but I can see why a 302 wouldn't be. You said that CDNs don't cache 302 by default. Could you configure a CDN to cache a 302? I think you might be able to, at least with Cloudflare, if you do a page rule, but I'm not sure about that. Ah, today I learned. I will say that the 301 is a high-risk redirect. I once broke an enormous e-tailer's website by 301-ing things in a mistaken manner. So be careful when doing the old um, uh, 301 permanent redirect. Did they have like some firewall rules that block that? I mean, I don't see why that would have broken something. That's crazy. So it was, um, it was we were transitioning vendors and the free, uh, the redirect was kind of happening during that transition. And then, of course, the temporary storage bit went away, at which point all the end users were kind of stuck looking for that. So, yeah, things got awfully messy. So it permanently moved and then was permanently removed and then everything pointed to nothing. Right. And people's browsers handle that differently. So there's no kind of canonical way of, of fixing it. It was good. It was a learning experience. It was a learning experience. So the the monkey patch you talk about in the talk, which is to to handle this this non-caching issue, is that still needed? I think so. There's a pull request. Everybody loves to hear strings of pull request numbers on a podcast, right? But I think it's 34477 that adds a proxy to active storage, like a proxy configuration you can make. And I think that handles the CDN. And I think it'll be released in Rails 6.1. So unless you're like running Rails at head, I don't, I think you probably still have to do this other thing. I would love to not be at like coming from when I started doing Rails development, it was still, I think we were like Rails 2. So I've done the Rails 2 to Rails 3 to Rails 4 to Rails 5 migrations over history. 2 to 3 was the best one, right? Oh, yes. I think that's why I like, I have this gun shyness about these kind of things. Like just monkey patching the Rails framework in any way, just just to say it, I kind of get a, a little upset stomach by it. So I would love to get that out of there. You know, just for me to have code I wrote that, 
or not even code I wrote, code that I copied off the internet uh, to override the framework <laughs> behavior really is kind of just unnerving for me. And I would love to be able to pull that out and do this in a more proper supported way. But I think as of today, until 6.1 is officially released, I think it is still needed. It it definitely works. Like it works great for us. And Dave had a had a suggestion on how he did it through the router, which also sounded like it would be it would work great too. So I think as long as it still works, I'm not too worried about it for ourselves and therefore wouldn't worry about recommending it to others. But there be dragons. I mean, you're monkey patching rails. So if you're new to rails, uh, understand that that's a scary maneuver. You have now advanced into the drop zone and uh, just always remember that it's there when you do your rails upgrade. The biggest risk with monkey patching rails is when you post on a public forum about your strange issue and it turns out that the reason you have that issue no one else has is because you monkey patch rails. Yeah. I mean, it's just to <laughs> add an unexpected output, you know, your own your own flavor of unexpected output onto the thing. Um, you know, when I started, I came from a Java background before Ruby, and I started at a company that was doing the, the two to three upgrade. And I didn't know really anything about Rails or any of this. And they had done a lot of customization on top of Rails for everything from routing to presenters. I mean, a lot of stuff. And I didn't know what was theirs, what was Rails. I didn't, I couldn't. I couldn't like find my way up, you know, I was in like the wormhole just spinning around. And so I still have this like feeling of like, I just don't want to touch rails. Like rails is rails. This is over here. You know, uh, this is my coat. This is rails. Keep them separate. And that way, when I do the upgrade, I know if I run into anything like Google will probably solve my problems. Otherwise you're, on your own, you know, you're, you're out on the wild, wild west and you have become a cowboy. Um, yep. I hope I'm not frightening anybody out there. Rails is great. Don't worry about it, people. Just don't. This, this is the Halloween episode, so go right ahead. <laughs> there, there you go. Oh. The monkey no, patching I, rails. I think you're on par there, Mark. You know, rails is great. So don't deviate from it. Right. So. Right. The routing mechanism that you mentioned that I had done, basically, I serve all my images through the CDN. Well, active storage at the time of this recording doesn't really support it so nicely. So what I essentially did was in my routes, my config slash routes.rb, I have a line in there, direct, and then the symbol CDN, and then I create a block Depending on if it's a development or test environment, I do one thing. Otherwise, if it's production, essentially, I have a URL, and then that's the URL to my CloudFront. And then I include the blob key, which since active storage is basically a flat file system, it doesn't put anything into folders, then it all just you know kind of magically works. So wherever I'm calling the image tag, instead of a image URL or something like that, I just call a CDN URL and then pass in my avatar variant or just the original image and stuff like that. And it just works. So I don't think I would ever run into issues with a Rails upgrade here because it's I don't really consider this monkey patching. I 
really consider it more building on top of. You should write a blog post about that and show everybody so we can all copy you too. Yeah, I do have a Drift and Ruby episode on it. It's episode 256. So it is a pro pro video, but there is a way to see it. Very cool. Was well, there anything else that we want to discuss around active storage? I don't think so. I, I had to, again, it's been a while. So I took some notes this morning of my conference talk. I listened to it at you know 1.75 speed and I think we hit all the high points. So, I mean, my my talk was more directed toward like what it's doing really well, the things that aren't and how I fix them. And I think we got everything. Awesome. Well, Mark, if people want to find you online, where should they go? Sure. I have a website. It's markhutter.com. Hutter like butter with an H. I'm also on Twitter, probably most actively of the social media platforms. It's M-R-K-H-U-T-T-E-R. There is another Mark Hutter out there. He beat me to it. And my GitHub handle is the same, MRK Hunter. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on and talking with us today. Uh, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. And so I'm going to go ahead and move us over to Picks. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Luke, do you want to kick us off? All right, sure. Well, uh, this week, I've been doing very inadvisable things in my database, most notably putting code into my database. The code in question is JavaScript. And what I'm doing is I'm executing my JavaScript using the exec.js gem. The reason I'm doing this is because I want to be able to add features to my site without actually changing the code. So if I want to run discounts or stuff, I can use JavaScript. Obviously, this should be done by DSL, but hey, this is what we're doing. And I spent literally hours trying to get the Ruby Racer gem, uh, which has the V8 backend working on my Catalina MacBook. And I completely gave up. Even though the Ruby Racer is at the top of the list for the exec.js gem in terms of JavaScript backends, I could not get it installed for any money. So I ended up just installing Node and using Node instead. But if you go to the exec.js gem page, uh, they have a slightly updated version of JavaScript backends for on the GitHub page for the same gem. So check that out. But yeah, uh, Ruby Razor couldn't couldn't get it to compile at all. Uh, so that's my first tried, pick. Go you ahead. Try Mini Racer. Oh, right, I didn't even have... know Mini Racer existed until I went to the GitHub page and not the uh, 